0: For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, uh, we're currently in a sermon series working our way uh, exegetically through the book of Matthew. Uh, We find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 15, uh, which can be found on page number 1521 of of the Pew Bibles. Again, that's Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. As I continue to hear pages leafing, we will pause, give everybody a chance to find the spot before we read. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew tells us, then, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders they don't wash their hands before they eat jesus replied and why do you break the command of god for the sake of your tradition for god said honor your father and mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death but you say that if a man says to his father or mother Whatever help you might otherwise have received to God or received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, "These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me." They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to himself and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then Out of the body, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Amen. Well, our passage this morning uh, picks up right after Jesus has fed uh, approximately 15,000 people, if you count women and children, with a few uh, loaves of bread and fish. He's just walked on water and rescued his disciples from a raging storm. He's just healed who knows how many people. Some of them he healed, and all they did was touch the edge of his cloak. His disciples have fallen down and worshipped him as the son of the living God. Meanwhile, the Pharisees have a little question for Jesus. Matthew tells us, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So these Pharisees have come all the way from Jerusalem. Uh, this likely means that this is a very prestigious group of Pharisees. This would be like if Hollywood sent uh, Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts to watch a play at Ripping Christian. It's kind of a big deal, right? And these Pharisees, <clears throat> they're not here to ask Jesus about feeding the 5,000. They're not here to ask him about the fact that he just walked on water last night. They're not here to ask him about all the healings he's been doing, some of which they probably saw with their own eyes. No. No, they want to know why Jesus' disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. So here's the question. Why would they ignore the amazing and focus on the insignificant? And the reason is because it's not insignificant. This isn't like your mom telling you that you need to wash your hands before you eat so you don't get sick. This is about spiritual authority. This is about who has the right to speak on behalf of God. This is about how does a sinful human being approach a holy God? These are, these are huge, massive, ultimate questions. And for the Pharisees, all the power and the miracles of Jesus don't matter a bit if Jesus is disobeying the law of God. And that's actually true. Because if Jesus is disobeying the law of God, then he's not perfect. And if he's not perfect, then he can't save us. So this is actually a really big question. So why did the Pharisees then think that washing their hands was so important? Well, the law of Moses, written down in the Old Testament, uh, commanded the priests to wash their hands when serving in the temple. But the Pharisees, they said... Everyone was supposed to wash their hands before they ate any meal. And this addition to the written law of Moses was part of a bunch of other additions called the Tradition of the Elders. And the Tradition of the Elders was the oral tradition that was also supposedly handed down by Moses. So the law was what Moses wrote down and then handed down. And the Tradition of the Elders was what Moses supposedly passed down orally through the generations on down to this current generation of Pharisees. So then, this tradition has the same authority as Scripture. So from the Pharisee's perspective, here's a rabbi. He's a religious leader. He's publicly defying a clear teaching from the elders of Israel that everyone knew about. Which means, according to the Pharisees, he's openly challenging the word of God. And to make it worse, he must have taught his disciples not to wash their hands. Because a disciple of a rabbi in Israel at that time would never dream of disregarding this tradition on their own. So not only that, but because of his powers to heal and cast out demons, people are wondering if this might be the Messiah. So from the Pharisees' perspective, here's this lawbreaker that everyone thinks might be the Savior of Israel. That's a problem. You see, if everyone in this church started following a false teacher, it would be the elders and my responsibility to say something. So this isn't just anybody who's openly challenging their tradition. This is a very influential, miracle-working, potential Messiah who's doing it. That's worth sending your best men up from Jerusalem to deal with. That's why they're not worried about the miracles or the healings. Because if this man is disregarding the law of God, there's no way he's from God. It doesn't matter what he can do. So here's the question. Who should the people listen to? Should they trust their eyes? Should they trust the man performing miracles and healings? Or should they trust the traditions? The steady, true, rock-solid traditions that have been handed down from generation to generation. And surprisingly, Jesus is going to say neither one. So, true spiritual authority has two things, and this is going to be our outline for the rest of the morning. True spiritual authority is consistent with the Word of God, and true spiritual authority provides an accurate diagnosis of our problem. Okay. So if I was Jesus, and these men came all the way from Jerusalem to accuse me of being a fraud, what I would probably say is, Can you feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and fish? I didn't think so. Can you walk on water? I'm that guy. I'm the one who can heal people, and all they have to do is touch the edge of my cloak. So back off, bub. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. And the reason is, is because we're not supposed to trust our eyes for spiritual authority. We live in a culture that likes shiny and dramatic spiritual experiences. We like big crowds and big music and talented speakers. And it can seem like the place that's polished and produced must be doing something right. They're not necessarily doing something wrong. But our culture is drawn to the spectacle and the experience and the entertainment because we like spiritual experiences and we tend to grant spiritual authority to people and places who can give us a spiritual experience. Some churches even claim to offer miracles and healings and a direct word from God as evidence of their spiritual authority. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't present his miracles as evidence of his spiritual authority. He actually presents his miracles as signs to back up his words. Do you see that? It's the word of God. That's our spiritual authority. Which is why Jesus points the Pharisees to the word of God. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God? for the sake of your tradition. He's saying, if you think I'm breaking the law of God because I'm not keeping your tradition, I think you're breaking the law of God by keeping your tradition. And the wonderful thing about this is all we have to do is look at the word of God to know who's right. That's how we deal with every conflict like this. We simply sit down, open up the word of God together and see what it clearly says which is what Jesus does. He goes on. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, notice the contrast, God says, but you say, that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So the Pharisees had a tradition. It was called Corban. We know that from Mark chapter 7. And Corban was a tradition where someone could dedicate their wealth to God. They could still use it for their personal needs uh, until they died, and then it went to God. So it would be like one of us willing our estate to the church. Except the only difference is uh, their estate no longer belonged to them. So they could only use it for their personal needs. They couldn't use it to care for their aging parents. So if I was a really crummy person, what I could do is I could devote my wealth to the church as Corbin to get out of my responsibility to care for my parents. That's one way this tradition was being used. Or what may have also happened is people would devote their wealth to God out of a sincere desire to give their wealth to the church, only to find out later that they can't care for their aging parents. Either way, this made-up tradition set up by the religious leaders for their benefit was forcing people to break the fifth commandment. And so with this one example, Jesus proves that the tradition of the elders cannot possibly be on the same level of authority as Scripture. Because if even one of their traditions is proven false, then they're all false. Therefore, there is no law from God that you have to wash your hands before you eat. However, let me just say this. Traditions aren't necessarily bad. Traditions in their being used properly, really what traditions are are just ways that we've developed through wisdom over time to help us hopefully be able to keep the commands of God. But they can never take over in terms of their level of authority. One tradition we have and that many of you have in your churches, if you're visiting with us today, is to have a worship service on Thanksgiving. Well, Thanksgiving is a secular holiday. Obviously, there's religious overtones because we're giving thanks, but there's no command from God in Scripture that says you have to come to a Thanksgiving service. If anybody came to me who was a member of my church and said, I'm never coming to that Thanksgiving service ever again, I would say, I think it's a blessing to go to that service, but fine. That's great. Go ahead. Do, it, do whatever you want to do. It's Thanksgiving. But if they came to me and said, I'm never coming to church on Sunday morning ever again, I might say, like, well, I, I, think, I think Scripture wants you to be here on Sunday morning on a regular basis. Do You see the difference, right? One's a tradition that we just made up. That's a wonderful thing, but the other is more in line with what God is calling us to do and obligating us to do and inviting us to do as Christians, If you were to wash your hands before you eat, out of reverence to God as a way of representing your desire to be pure and holy before Him, I say, go for it. Just don't tell somebody else that they absolutely have to do it. Don't think of yourself as a better Christian because you go to church on Thanksgiving. So whatever tradition we set up, it can never become a law. They're meant to help us keep the commands of Scripture, but they cannot contradict Scripture, and they can never have the same authority as scripture. We have a nice word uh, for it when we add laws to the Bible. It's called legalism. And the best way to deal with legalism is to sit down and open up the scriptures and see what the scriptures actually say. There's only one source of authority that leads to life and godliness. There's only one source of authority that revives your soul. Psalm 19:7 says this the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And when we live our lives according to Scripture, what Scripture does is it will bind our conscience where God commands us to live in a certain way, and then it will free our conscience. And all the places God says, you're free. You're free here. And that's what a revived soul looks like, a soul that knows God's will for them and a soul that knows where they're free to decide for themselves. Next. True spiritual authority provides an accurate diagnosis of our problem. So here's how spiritual authority works. Uh, We grant spiritual authority to whoever solves our deepest spiritual problem. Let me say that again. We grant spiritual authority to whoever solves our deepest spiritual problem. So if someone believes their deepest spiritual problem is that they drink too much alcohol— who might they grant spiritual authority to? Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, in AA, there's a big book. Well, that becomes their scripture. In AA, there's 12 steps that you live as a way of life. Your sponsor becomes your priest or your spiritual guide who tells you how to be clean. Do you see the connections, right? Now, If if drinking too much alcohol is a spiritual problem, you know, something like AA could be helpful. But if it's the spiritual problem, guess what AA becomes? It becomes your church. It becomes your religion. And it's actually a legalistic religion. Because the center of the problem is a behavior problem. The Pharisees also thought their biggest spiritual problem was a behavior problem. If everyone would just obey God's law and follow all the traditions, then God would bless Israel. That's why Jesus was such a threat. He was tearing down their system. He was like a guy in AA who refused to follow the steps. And when you have somebody in the system who's tearing down the system, that guy has to go. This is why Jesus ultimately ends up on a cross. It's because he was inside the system tearing down the system. But a spiritual system is always built on whatever we think our biggest spiritual problem actually is. So, if I think my biggest spiritual problem is that I don't experience God enough, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to need great lights and great music. I'm going to need someone who can make me feel God's presence. I might need mystical experiences. So I'm going to seek out silence and solitude and spiritual discipline so I can experience God. Do you see? Whatever we think our spiritual problem is will lead to the kind of spirituality that we're living out. We'll put up boundaries in our life with people who bring down our sense of personal satisfaction. We'll change churches, experimenting with different practices or traditions, looking for the one that fits me. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying there? So my question for us this morning is, what do we tend to believe is our greatest spiritual problem? Now, if you've been raised in the church, we all know the answer, right? That, oh, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. But I mean, on a practical day in and day out basis, the way you live your life, what is your greatest spiritual need? What occupies your heart and your mind and your time and your actions? And if we focus on that, usually we can trace it back to the thing that we believe is actually our greatest spiritual need. The Pharisees believed our biggest spiritual problem is ritual purity before God. And the way to be clean is to follow their steps. Keep the law of Moses, trust the Pharisees trust the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, keep all the traditions of the elders, and then you can be sure you're a good Jew and God is happy with you. But Jesus, his diagnosis of the problem is very different. He's going to tell us this morning that our biggest spiritual problem is our heart, that we don't love God, and that the thoughts and words and actions that flow out of a heart like that, that's what defiles us before God, and that there's nothing we can do on our own to be clean. Do you see how different that is? And that leads to a completely different kind of spirituality when we realize that is our deepest problem. So Jesus looks right at the Pharisees and he says this, "You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain." Their teachings are merely human rules. So just like the religious leaders of Isaiah's time, these religious leaders are going through the motions. They're adding extra motions to go through, but their hearts are actually far from God. And Jesus is telling them, look, you think you're doing all the right things, and you feel really good about yourself because of all the good things you're doing, but God wants your heart, right? Just like, just like your wife, doesn't want flowers on Valentine's Day just so you're not mad at her. She wants flowers because you love her and you want to bless her. She wants you to love her. So Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. So this is a little proverb or a parable And we'll get back to this idea in a minute when uh, Peter asked Jesus to explain it, but at the very least, what Jesus is saying here is that we need to be more worried about what comes out of our mouth than what goes into our mouth, okay? Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So the Pharisees were offended because Jesus is saying that they're the ones who are defiled before God. The false teaching that is coming out of their mouth is defiling them before God more than the dirt that's going in. You see, we cannot be offended by Jesus' diagnosis. Jesus is the great physician, and he's diagnosing our spiritual condition, and we need to receive it. Right? If you had a, a pain in your side and you went to the doctor. We would all really want the doctor to say, hey, you pulled a muscle. Just, you need a few weeks of rest. But we cannot, it would be insane, actually, to be offended if the doctor said it's cancer. Right? Jesus goes on. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. So not only have the Pharisees misdiagnosed our spiritual problem, but because they don't know the real problem, they have not actually been planted by the Father. There's this picture in Israel, right, that Israel was this plant that God had planted. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. He's saying they're not part of Israel. They're not part of the plant that my heavenly Father has planted. The person with cancer who thinks they just pulled a muscle is going to die. Jesus is saying the Pharisees are so wrong on this that they are not true children of God, and they're teaching something that is so wrong that if you follow them, you'll end up just as blind as they are. Right? Heaven and hell is in the balance here. Right? This, is, this is how important it is what we believe about what's really wrong with us. So Peter says, explain the parable to us. What are you saying, Jesus? Give it to me straight. Jesus says, Are you so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then comes out of the body? Remember, Jesus is talking about this tradition about washing hands here. But it serves as an example of anything we do on our own to try to make ourselves pure before God. And the point here is that our spiritual problem is outside of us. Oh, sorry. Sorry. The point here is that our spiritual problem is not outside of us. Our biggest spiritual problem is not outside of us. It's not the family we were raised in. It's not the things that have happened to us. While God might grieve some of the things that have happened to us, it's not our environment. Our biggest spiritual problem is what comes out of us from our heart. Jesus goes on. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them for or because. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is our spiritual problem. Notice, Jesus says two things. He says we have a heart problem and we have a sin problem. Notice, Jesus doesn't say it's only our heart that defiles us. He says we have a heart that produces evil thoughts, words, and actions, and those are what defile us. and there's nothing we can do to change our heart. There's no steps we can follow to make ourselves clean. There's nothing we can do to wash it all away. We need a savior who can forgive our evil, murderous, immoral thoughts and actions. But since it's our evil, murderous, immoral thoughts and actions that defile us, we also need a savior who can give us a new heart and change us. And that takes a miracle. And Jesus has been proving that he is just the kind of person who performs miracles. And now, he's helping us see the miracle that we all really need. In our tradition here, we hold to the doctrines uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, It's 129 questions and answers, written almost 500 years ago, that summarizes what the Bible emphasizes and teaches. And we believe that it's part of a really good tradition. And the reason we believe that is because it's based on the Word of God. It doesn't contradict the Word of God. And it doesn't have more authority than the Word of God. But we believe it actually summarizes what the Bible teaches. So it begins with this question that many of you are probably familiar with, which is, what is my only comfort in life and death? And the answer is so wonderful Because it reminds us that our hope is grounded in what Christ has done for us. He is faithful. He shed his blood. He sets us free. He makes us wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. And it's so comforting because it addresses our real spiritual problem. And if you've never read Question and Answer 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism... I'm actually going to leave it to you to look that up on your own. If you've never read it, I am 100% sure that you will be tremendously blessed. Just Google CRCNA Heidelberg Catechism. Don't even worry about spelling it right. It'll pop up. Trust me. But the second question and answer is not quite as well known, but every bit is important. And this is what the question is. What must I know to live and die in this company? What must I know? So this comfort that's described in the first question and answer is so wonderful, right, but what do I have to know to really be comforted by the faithfulness of Jesus, by the shed blood of Jesus, to know that he's really set me free, to live a life wholeheartedly, ready and willing from now on to live in him? What do I have to know to receive that comfort from myself. And the answer is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all sin, my sins and misery. And third, how I am to be thankful for such deliverance. So this passage, I wrestled with it because it's a, it's a difficult passage. And the reason is, is because Jesus is diagnosing us. And it's hard to be diagnosed. It's hard for someone to tell you, this is what's wrong with you. But it helps us see how great our sin and misery really are. It teaches us that our sin, our thoughts, our words, our actions, they really do defile us. They make us miserable. It matters before God what we think and say or do. But in order to change, we need a new heart. And so we have to accept this diagnosis. We have to know how great our sin and misery really are in order to enjoy the comfort that Jesus offers. Because God wants our whole heart, not just our religious actions. We are comforted when we receive a whole Christ, a whole Savior, One who not only forgives our sin, but who transforms us from the inside out, removing our heart of stone, giving us a new heart, a heart that is wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for Him, a heart that produces thoughts and words and actions that flow out of love for God and love for others. And this is offensive to us too because it's humbling. It means we must be forgiven. It means we must change. It means we need Jesus every moment. It means we must repent every day for the rest of our lives, not only for the things that we do, but for what we are. It forces us to come to Him every moment, full of faith, believing that He really does forgive us, because sometimes that's hard to believe. And believing that he really will transform us, because sometimes that's hard to believe, but he promises, right? He promises that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. But because the cure is only partial in this life, this is how we must live the rest of our lives. Dependent on him for daily grace and mercy, leaning into the church for help along the way, We don't need signs and wonders. We don't need miracles. We don't need extra rules and laws. We need the scriptures. And we need our Savior. And we need a church that helps us keep our eyes on both. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this word from Jesus, this reminder of the authority of your word and the reminder of what our true problem really is and the fact that Jesus is a savior who saves us from our sins. Thank you. In his name we pray, amen.